Welcome to the Kindred Spirits Book Club, where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Reagan Duffy, and I'm joined by Kelly Gurner for our fifth episode. And I'm so glad to be here. Kelly, who is today's Kindred Spirit? I'm really excited because today we are going to be talking about Diana Barry, Anne's bosom friend and Kindred Spirit. Diana is a girl who lives on the next farm over from the Cuthberts, and she and Anne develop a beautiful lifelong friendship over the course of the series. And it's a friendship that's really grounded in their childhood escapades in Anne of Green Gables. For our quote of the episode, let's let Anne explain what a bosom friend is. Anne says, a bosom friend, an intimate friend, you know, a really kindred spirit to whom I can confide my innermost soul. I've dreamed of meeting her all my life. I never really supposed I would, but so many of my loveliest dreams have come true all at once that perhaps this one will too. Do you think it's possible? And we'll discover that this is another dream that will come true. So for today's story club, we're going to get into Diana Barry and the theme of friendship in this book. I'm really glad that Kelly is the person I'm talking to about this theme. Kelly is an expert friend, not just an expert at being my friend, although she is, but an expert at making deep friendships and keeping them thriving and growing throughout all eras of her life. I don't know anyone else who has such vibrant friendships from each age, from third grade brownie friends through college and law school friends, internet friends, co-working friends, and deep cross-age friendships. I know my daughter counts Kelly as one of her best friends as well. Kelly invests in and prioritizes friendships in a way that Anne herself would be in awe of. Thank you, Reagan. I feel really, really lucky that I've met so many incredible people in my life who've inspired me to Anne-like devotion. And of course, your daughter is among them. I'm really looking forward to talking about how the example of lifelong friendship that Anne and Diana set for me as a kid has influenced how I approach my friendships, even in adulthood. Anne and Diana's friendship is one of the three tentpole relationships for Anne once she arrives at Green Gables. Marilla provides guidance, structure, and grounds Anne's flightiness. Matthew provides unconditional love and acceptance. And Diana is her true companion in all of her experiences. All kids need peers, need same age friendship as they grow. Adults are wonderful but friends connect with you on an equal level. Friends are going through the same thing you are going through and they don't have the benefit of experience. That's why they're important. Marilla and Matthew love Anne deeply, but as adults, they laugh a little at her dramatic ways, at her intense emotions, at her imagination. They know that the world is bigger than Anne's feelings, but Diana is right there with Anne. She takes Anne seriously. Anne meets Diana early on, Marilla noting that she's a real nice little girl who lives over at Barry's farm. Anne quickly asks Diana to be her bosom friend, which Diana readily agrees to. And it's funny how quickly Anne attaches to Diana, but it does make sense. We've already learned from Anne that she's never had a friend. The closest she had ever gotten to having a friend were products of her own imagination. Katie Maurice, who was Anne's reflection in the glass at Mrs. Thomas's house, Anne shared everything with Katie and cried dreadfully when she had to leave. At Mrs. Hammond's house, Anne created Violetta, 
an echo in the valley behind the house. Oh, that's so sad. Violetta is just an echo. Oh, it's so sad. Anne was brokenhearted to leave Violetta and go to the orphanage. So sad she'd hadn't the heart to imagine a bosom friend at the asylum, even if there had been any scope for the imagination there. It's no wonder that a real live girl, just her age, living close by in a beautiful place like Avonlea, would inspire devotion in Anne before she's even gotten to know her. Anne is definitely in love with the idea of a friend even before she's met Diana in person. It's lucky that Diana is not only very sweet, but also somewhat lonely in her way and ready to connect with a friend as well. In Marilla's episode, we noted that we get to know Marilla well because her reactions to Anne's adventures are primarily the way we experience what Anne is up to. We're also in Marilla's point of view for much of the book. We get to hear Marilla's internal thoughts and reactions. The opposite is true for Diana for the most part. We only know her through Anne's interpretation of her, which to a certain extent mirrors how most kids view the world around them. Being self-centered in how they view the world is a developmental stage, and it's often a struggle for kids at Anne and Diana's age to see their peers as having whole internal lives and experiences that are different from their own. And while Marilla's character experiences a growth arc, which we unpacked in our previous episode, Diana's primary role in the book is as Anne's companion and foil. She's the recognizable, conventional little girl who makes whimsical, adventurous Anne seem all the more splendid and shining by comparison. She's the person Anne bounces her imagination off of. She's the willing participant in Anne's flights of fancy, but rarely leads flights of her own. Since Diana isn't a point of view character, we have to read through the line to detect the kind of kid that Diana is. Anne tells us that Diana is a pretty child. Well, to Anne, Diana is more than just pretty. Diana is Anne's ideal of girlhood beauty, with raven black hair, rosy cheeks, a fair complexion, and dark, soulful eyes. In a lot of ways, Diana represents the ideal girl to Anne. Diana is conventionally pretty. She's described as round and soft where Anne is thin. Diana is ladylike and well-behaved where Anne is always getting into scrapes. And of course, unsaid in the text, but certainly present, is the fact that Diana is an Avonlea insider from a family well-known and well-respected. And Diana has two living parents who love her and who have ensured that she wants for little. Diana is the real life version of everything Anne feels she lacks. Again, it's no wonder that Anne fell immediately in love with Diana, or at least to start, fell in love with the idea of Diana as her friend. The text does tell us that Diana's bookish, so we know that she has an imagination, the first requirement to being a friend of Anne's. In the scene where Anne and Diana meet, Mrs. Barry tells Marilla that Diana would rather read than play outside. Same girl, same. (laughs) I think we can both relate. Oh, yeah. It seems like Anne also unlocks Diana's imagination, helping it bloom. The text tells us that Diana always laughs before she speaks, which could indicate that she's nervous, but I think in Diana's case, it seems more likely that she just doesn't take anything too seriously, which when you think about it is a wonderful quality for a friend to a little girl who has endured a lot of seriousness. 
Anne does get Diana outside where she eagerly joins in on Anne's imaginative games. The girls run all over together, exploring the natural world in total freedom. One detail we really love is that they created a house in the woods together that they called Idlewild, which they filled with little treasures and stories about fairies. I love that. Reminds me of some of my childhood, like hiding places outside. And the fact that they would take little like chipped bits of china and like pieces of an old chandelier to decorate it with, love. Diana is popular with the other Avonlea children. At school, we see that she's socially savvy. She explains the schoolhouse dynamics to Anne. She gives Anne all the scoop on friends and fashions and boys. Diana is a consummate insider and she's Anne's bridge to the Avonlea community at large. If you remember, when Anne went to Sunday school by herself, none of the other little girls would speak to her. I don't know if it had anything to do with the way she decorated her hat with wildflowers, but <laughs> when she goes to school with Diana, she makes friends really easily. It's Diana who gives Anne the heads up about Gilbert Blythe, how he teases, and Diana who gives Anne context to Gilbert's teasing. As Diana grows up, we learn that she's known for her good taste in clothes and hairstyles, and Anne and Diana share a love of beautiful dresses. Although they have a common love for romantic stories and pretty clothes, Diana and Anne are also starkly different in their personalities. Anne is undoubtedly the leader. Diana will gamely follow Anne's lead the majority of the time, but Diana does have opinions of her own. She named the Birch Path, although she allows Anne to name most of their landmarks in Anne's signature flowery style. You know that had to be a wrench for Anne to let something as prosaic as Birch Path stand, but that's a mark of a good friend. Oh yeah, a little bit of compromise always helps, but you can you can see Anne being like, yes, there's a path with birches on it. This is really the best we can do. Right. <laughs> Diana bemoans the fact that she was born without an imagination and Anne urges her friend to practice more. Diana also occasionally speaks with an authority that she must have learned from her mother, such as when she's decrying a classmate's ridiculous skirt length or sharing her feelings on some of the more unfortunate looking boys in their class. But while Diana can be a little sassy, she doesn't have Anne's temper, her ferocity, or her stubbornness. Diana doesn't have the ability to stand up for herself to adults the way that Anne does. After the raspberry cordial incident, when Mrs. Barry forbids Anne and Diana's friendship, Diana obeys her mother, not just to the letter of her edict, but to the spirit of the edict by not even speaking to or acknowledging Anne at school after her mother forbids it. Similarly, Diana is too afraid to talk to Aunt Josephine about her promised music lessons after the whole jumping on an elderly woman in the spare room episode. And it's up to Anne's courage and winsomeness to charm Aunt Josephine into forgiveness. I wonder whether some of that also has to do with Diana has a lot to lose in the community and Anne has spent her life not having anything to lose, really. I think that's true. For Anne, it's not very risky to go to an imposing older woman and beg for forgiveness. Like She's been in so many different scrapes over the course of her life. She's been in so many tumultuous situations that she's like, well, what's worse than not asking? Absolutely. And she's used to having people kind of be mean to her. So whereas Diana has pretty much had everything she's ever wanted in life, you know, handed to her pretty readily. But probably conditional on her good behavior. 
Absolutely. When Anne and Diana scare themselves silly with ghost stories about the haunted wood, Diana's mother chastises her for letting her imagination run away from her. And we see that from that point on, Diana is less willing to go on Anne's wild flights of fancy. Finally, Diana doesn't speak up to her parents about attending the after-school queen study classes with Anne and Gilbert, although she shares her disappointment privately to Anne. Diana has absorbed the mores and conventions of the time, so Anne occasionally scandalizes her with her boldness. But when Diana's with Anne, that seems to release her from some of those more traditional constraints of girlhood. Anne has had to make her own way in the world and knows that nothing is guaranteed. Diana is being raised to be a wife and mother and has never needed to doubt her future. Diana's a little more traditionally boy crazy than Anne. She is very aware of the schoolhouse flirtations and who is on the take notice board with whom. Diana knows her future will be marriage, homemaking, and motherhood. And she's already thinking about her own romantic life as she gets older. In contrast, Anne loves to dream up dramatic romantic stories with wealthy barons and tragic endings, but is firmly against any actual boys. She consistently, (laughs) right? Which, fair. Who hasn't had a crush on like, boy band participants right i'm still waiting for mr darcy to come out of the pages of pride and prejudice for me i don't know about you Uh uh-huh she consistently rejects not just gilbert but bids by other boys for her attention preferring her idyllic daydreams to real life boys it seems that while some of this is anne's personality it's also evidence that anne's life experiences and the ways that she's being raised are very different from diana's Marriage, homemaking, and motherhood are not foregone conclusions for Anne. Her tumultuous early life, coupled with being raised by people who never married, haven't given Anne the message that marriage is inevitable, or even the goal. She's much more interested in living a life that will allow her to learn and meet new people and have new experiences. I think that's just one of the things that makes Anne such an amazing character, especially for this time. Very much so, I think. Because Diana is more demure, more obedient, more ladylike than Anne, we can see the kind of child the reader is expecting and how bright Anne shines in comparison. As close as these two girls are, Diana really is Anne's foil. Anne's vibrance, ambition, intelligence, imagination, and singularity stand in stark contrast to Diana's comfortable, predictable, practical, planned life. Given all of these differences, I wonder if Diana and Anne would have been friends if anything other than sheer proximity brought them together. I think about our friendship with each other, one forged in adulthood and over the internet to begin with. I know. And And shored up by shared interests and values and outlook on the world. We really chose each other as someone we can talk to about everything from books to social justice issues to indie perfumes to relationships and personal growth. We're true kindred spirits in that way. And through our intentional investment in spending time with each other over the years, we've cultivated a deep and meaningful friendship. Maybe because we moved a few times when I was a kid, I didn't really carry over a lot of childhood friendships into adulthood. I feel like most of my adult friendships were formed as I was an adult or becoming an adult. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting and significant difference in 
the kind of friendships you have as an adult versus a child, right? When you're an adult, you really are choosing the people you want to be with. You know, proximity can play a role in it, but you know, you're hanging out with people because you have things in common. You know, you have a shared hobby or common goals or values. And when you're a kid, it's kind of just like whoever's on your street, right? Uh So I do have very close friends from my childhood. And when I think about whether Anne and Diana would choose each other out of sheer proximity, I often think about those childhood friends. For some context, we grew up in a pretty typical housing tract in Southern California. It was one of those neighborhoods where there were a ton of kids. Everyone just sort of ran around, played in the parks. We could Typical 80s childhood. Yes, kids on bikes. <laughs> you could walk to school, to the beach, to after school activities. Our parents threw block parties. They volunteered for the PTA, scout leaders, coaches. I mean, it was the whole thing, right? much like Avonlea, it was definitely a neighborhood where everyone knew everyone and everyone was very involved and invested in the children of the community. The two neighborhood girls who were my age were Jill and Sarah. Sarah's mom was actually our brownie troop leader when we were in second or third grade. So we originally bonded over beach cleanups and of course the Girl Scout law. And for most of our childhoods, we spent all day, every day together, from walking to school, to playing after school, talking on the phone after dinner as if we just couldn't get enough of each other. As kids, we went really hard into like imaginative play. We'd come up with these dramatic and glamorous situations where we'd pretend to be royalty or celebrities, which reminds me a lot of Anne and Diana pretending to be fairy princesses. We would write scripts for movies and plays we wanted to produce, and then we would round up the younger kids in the neighborhood to be our actors. Nice! (laughs) And of course, as you do, we learned all the lyrics and dance moves to the popular songs and made paper fortune tellers and friendship bracelets. And then in high school, we stayed friends. Jill and I were both theater kids, so we were together pretty much 24-7 from carpooling to school in the morning to rehearsals late at night. And then Sarah, God lover, was our biggest fan and loyally went to all of our shows and endured countless hours of us singing Rent to her. Oh, that's a good friend. Yeah, I'm not sure if she's forgiven us for that, to be honest. Sorry, Sarah. (laughs) When I think about it now, I don't know if it ever occurred to me that there would be a time when Sarah and Jill wouldn't be my best friends. And now that we're adults, I'm starting to realize how rare it is that my childhood friends are still some of the closest relationships in my life. But I don't think it ever occurred to Sarah and Jill that we wouldn't always be friends either, because even after high school graduation and moving away to college and all that, we stayed in touch. I mean, we had technology, peak AOL instant messenger years. I wonder whether that was a little bit of a difference because I didn't get email to like my senior year of college. I really think it was because you could set your AOL instant messenger to some dramatic Fiona Apple lyric while you were away at class your friends would like your high school friends could leave messages for you and you'd come back from college classes and see them all there and you know we were still kind of pinging each other in that way even if we weren't Mm. in each other's lives all day every day like we had been as kids and then you know every time we came home of course we'd just pick up like no time had passed even though we were you know going to bars instead of the neighborhood parks As we got older, you know, Jill and I eventually moved away from California. That, I think, is when our commitment to our friendship got really serious. We all three stayed in touch, but those visits home weren't as frequent or as predictable. And so I think that this would be the moment where you would kind of naturally start to grow apart and probably where a lot of people do. But then we started doing something that we've kept up pretty faithfully for the past 20 years. We started taking trips together. 
most of the time, yeah, I think that's the secret. Most of the time, those trips are really small and inexpensive. Like two of us would go visit the other one for a weekend. One early trip that really stands out in my memory is when Jill and Sarah flew to Ohio, where I was going to law school. I need you to picture this. We're all 23 years old (laughs) from Southern California. None of us has extra money for a plane ticket. And they literally slept on the worst futon ever with my blind dog, Termite. Oh, Termite. (laughs) I showed them all over town. It was so cold. And I even remember thinking at that time, I don't know if anyone else's friends would do this. So I eventually did move back to LA and Sarah and I now got to see each other all the time. She's literally staying with me this weekend. I mean, that's, we see each other all the time. And that's just how it goes. We went to Seattle earlier this month to celebrate Jill's birthday. We're going to New Orleans together in a couple months. We're always making plans to visit each other. We maintain our group chat and Sarah and I, of course, are the doting aunties to Jill's kids. I wonder whether for me, that's part of where that happened for me because I'm not good at traveling to see friends. And I don't know whether partly because my family is very scattered now across the U.S. So I, when I was younger and had no money, but had more time, relatives would pay to fly me out. Right. So I would visit them. And then when I had more money, but no time, I still often prioritized going to visit family because I couldn't see them all in one spot. I didn't put in as much time committing to travel to go see friends, even though I had some friends who came to see me. Yeah, I think that that can be it. And it's really just about staying connected. All of that is very intentional. And although it's a labor of love, it requires a real labor in the time planning, money, preparation, and execution. And now I think about how every time we make a plan to visit each other, we're reconnecting with those eight-year-old girls playing in the park. Those kids who were friends just because their parents all liked the same style of faux Tudor tract housing. (laughs) Would we be friends without proximity? I think what's interesting is that at this point, we've been friends for so long, we've shaped each other's personalities and interests and worldviews. If you and I, Reagan, chose each other based on common interests and values, then Jill, Sarah, and I forged those identities together. Our present-day conversations bounce around from current books to each other's families to, like, quotations from a movie we would have watched on a sleepover night when we were 12. I hope it was Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Um, Girls Just Want to Have Fun was certainly a favorite. We recently rewatched Legends of the Fall. I don't know that I recommend revisiting that one, to be honest. Some things don't age well. I think with us, what we had in common uh, is each other and our own shared history. I love that. I'm really lucky, I think, to have those close friendships from a lot of different periods in my life. Um, And I will say that for me, maintaining those friendships is something that I really love doing. I it replenishes me. It feel, makes me feel connected and happy and peaceful, but I don't want to pretend like it's not work. It is, and it's intention, and it's planning, and it's budgeting time and money, and it's understanding that your friendships move through phases. One thing that I hear people say a lot is that they lost their best friend to marriage or a move or a new baby. And the thing is, those things naturally take someone's time and attention away from a friendship. So I think that part of being a good friend is letting them know you're there anyway and celebrating their journey alongside them, visiting their new town with like a great housewarming gift or 
showing up for dinner with a few hours of babysitting time when their kids are little, or even being the third wheel or setting up a double date when your friend is in, you know, that honeymoon phase of a new relationship. Just be purposeful about showing up for the people you love with enthusiasm and joy. And that's where you have lifelong best friends. Kelly, that's really one of the things that cemented you as a kindred spirit friend in my life. You and your husband really showed up for us when Alice was born. You guys would text that you were coming over and bringing dinner and not to worry if the baby was fussy. We'd just pass her around till she fell asleep and then we could catch up and play games. You didn't let us withdraw into a new parenthood cocoon and it would have been easy for us to do that. You really put in effort at a time when we were barely keeping our heads above water. And as a result, our friendship grew closer and you guys became people we knew we could count on. And as a bonus, you were able to create a lovely friendship with Alice, which I love watching. And now that we aren't in the parenting weeds anymore, I hope I'm showing up for you in the way that you need me to. Well, it was my pleasure. I don't remember Alice ever being a fussy baby. No, she was a joy. <laughs> <laughs> and Reagan, you definitely are. I mean, even doing this podcast together is such a fun way for us to connect throughout the week. Personally, though, I cannot wait for Alice to be the age where everything we do is embarrassing so we can play these episodes back to her on road trips. I can hear the backseat groans already. Ooh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> I think that another thing that's really lovely about Ian and Diana is how little jealousy there is between them. I think there could have been another version of Anne who could have been so jealous of Diana, who had everything that Anne did not, from physical beauty to a stable home. As the girls grow up, those tables turn a little, right? And Anne goes out into the wider world and Diana stays in Avonlea. And there are these hints that Diana might have wanted more than the path that was laid out before her. And that's something that we experience with long friendships. Your friend has something you wish you had, be it more money or a nicer home or a partner or children or no children, or even, I don't know, like perfect hair. And it can be hard to remember how much you love them and how happy you are for their happiness. But Anne and Diana showed us that friendship is about genuine love and support, about celebrating the good things and helping to shoulder the bad things. It's simple stuff, but that's how you make and keep a lifelong friendship. For today's detour down the birch path, Let's talk a little bit about the dynamics of Anne and Diana's friendship through a historical and a developmental lens. There are a lot of elements in their friendships that read differently to the modern ear. There's an amazing passage from early on in their friendship here. Kelly, would you read it? Sure. So Marilla says, whatever's the matter now, Anne? It's about Diana, sobbed Anne luxuriously. I love Diana so, Marilla. I cannot ever live without her. But I know very well that when we grow up, that Diana will get married and go away and leave me. And, oh, what shall I do? I hate her husband. I just hate him furiously. I've been imagining it all out, the wedding and everything. Diana dressed in snowy garments with a veil and looking as beautiful and regal as a queen and me, the bridesmaid, with a lovely dress too and puff sleeves, but with a breaking heart hid beneath my smiling face. And then, bidding Diana, goodbye. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just laughing at the middle of it. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Here Anne broke down entirely and wept with increasing bitterness. 
Marilla turned quickly away to hide her twitching face, but it was no use. She collapsed on the nearest chair and burst into such a hearty and unusual peal of laughter that Matthew, crossing the yard outside, halted in amazement. Oh, that was Marilla. that was beautiful, Kelly. You really embodied <laughs> and and bidding Diana goodbye. It's oh. written in the text like that. It's so it well is. done. It is. It's beautiful. Oh, I laugh every time. And Marilla, okay. there's, yeah, Marilla is right. There's no way to not laugh at that. No. no. <laughs> so, of course, one take on this dramatic moment is that this is often how intense friendship feels to kids. They aren't thinking in terms of romantic love or sexual love, but that intense friendship, that feeling of being seen and known by a friend is essential. In fact, friendship is an extremely important aspect of child development. In the early elementary school years, we learn from our peers, we measure ourselves against our peers, and our friendships are the first relationships of equals that we form outside our families. They are how we practice social skills and learn to be part of a community. And as we move into our tween and then teen years, a huge part of our development happens with our friends. Our friendships are how we develop our identity. I think exactly about what you were saying about how Jill and Sarah and you shaped each other. And that's very, very true about friendships during that time in your life. Yeah, Friendships are how we start practicing independence away from our family. What our friends think of us often shapes how we think about ourselves. That's often where you get people leaning into their groups, whether that's a sports team or theater kid or mm -hmm. the mathletes, right? And that helps define who you are. In that respect, Anne and Diana's friendship is deeply aspirational for children. They are loyal and supportive of one another through their friendship. They're rarely envious or jealous of each other. They celebrate each other wholeheartedly. Yes. And Anne's devastation at their imagined separation is easy to understand. If you remember how intense you felt when you were 11 or 12, if a friend moved away or switched to a different school or even switched to a different classroom. Anne's flowery in her language and dramatic in her presentation, but the core of her friendship and her feeling is universal. So Regan, I have to say this is really resonating for me and it's making me remember um, a story I have to share from that same age that involves my friend Jill. So when we were in seventh grade, you know, 12 years old or so, I ran for class president and I made the somewhat dubious choice to include a picture of me in my campaign materials. And since some 12-year-old boys are hideous little gremlins, the pictures oh. were defaced and I was mortified. Oh. <laughs> but Jill, my true-hearted friend, ran all over school and collected the vandalized pictures before they were widely seen. Being that age, when everything feels so big, I was overwhelmed with gratitude and love. 30 years later, I've never forgotten how cared for and protected she made me feel. Now that I think shows that intensity of adolescent friendship. A plus friending, Jill. Yes. <laughs> so now another layer you could read into Anne's intensity of feeling towards Diana is the very modern convention to think of romantic or sexual love as all encompassing and more important than platonic friendship love. That your romantic partner should always fill the best friend role. 
I do think that's something that we're hearing all the time now, like, oh, your husband should be your best friend. You know, your marriage is your most important relationship. I don't know how true that is. And it can be true for some people, but in earlier eras, there was no assumption that that was true in a marriage. Marriage was practical. It was about bearing children. It was functional. In some lucky cases, it might be romantic and there might be sexual connection, but there wasn't an assumption that a wife and a husband would be best friends. Friendship was seen as a completely different entity than marriage. There was no conflict between having a deep connection with another woman in friendship and also being a happily married wife. Men's and women's roles were rather circumscribed at that time, and cross-gender friendships between adults weren't common. It was only natural that women would form intense fellowships between them as they supported each other in their domestic roles. It would not be expected that a husband would provide emotional support or understanding, so close female friendships filled an essential role in one's life. And the same was true for same-gender friendships between men. In fact, you can see in Victorian and Edwardian era photos of soldiers, men holding hands or otherwise being physically affectionate with each other, and this was not coded as homosexuality. Being gay wasn't particularly an option, but many men felt emotionally intimate and close to other men in ways that modern American guys seem to shy away from. Kelly, I'm going to show you some pictures of that time and you'll see what I mean. So I'm going to share. I'm excited. I'm going to share with you and I want you to tell me what you see. In this picture, it's a beautiful gilt frame, I will say. And it's like a black and white sort of daguerreotype type or tin type uh, photo. And it's two men in what looks to be uniform because it's the same kind of outfit. And one of them has their arm around the other. They're sitting like thigh to thigh. They're holding hands as well. I mean, this is very intimate to me. If you saw, you know, if I saw this picture on Facebook today, I'd be like, oh, cool, boyfriends. Mm -hmm. It says it's two soldiers in the Trans-Mississippi Confederate battle shirts taken sometime around 1861. Okay. Oh, another one. Very similar. Okay. So also looks like a photo probably from the same era. Definitely looks like soldiers. This time there are three of them. And I'm telling you right now, if I saw this photo in a contemporary context, I'd be like, awesome gay thruple. (laughs) Yep. Again, they're holding hands. One of them has his arm around both the other two. Yeah. So in this one, you see two soldiers in union uniforms holding, they've got their arms kind of intertwined with each other and they're holding cigars to each other's mouths. Yeah, this is like a very Lady in the Tramp style moment. Uh Uh-huh. And you can see kind of as I'm just flipping through some of these that these were not uncommon pictures. Yeah, even if maybe some of these men might have been in a romantic relationship with each other, I doubt all of them were. And you've just shown me like a good 15 or 20 pictures back to back of, you know, men in old timey uniforms, holding hands, arms around each other, standing very close together. I mean, yeah, this is the kind of friend intimacy that was just more common at this time, I guess. Yeah. I love all these pictures. No, they're great pictures. It was only at the turn of the 20th century in European-based cultures that media and advertisements began to trumpet romantic marriages as an ideal. In fact, many of those books that Anne reads that seem to feed her romantic passions were very new and modern at the time. Really? Yeah. 
the idea of same-sex friendships as a primary source of emotional connect connection began to fade away as it was gradually replaced with the idea that emotional fulfillment came from romantic love between spouses. So Anne and Diana's intense friendships and connection is not only age appropriate, it's also very era appropriate. When Anne breaks down sobbing to Marilla because she's imagining the day that Diana gets married and she's no longer the most important person in Diana's life, it's both funny. It hasn't even happened yet, Anne, you're 12. <laughs> but it also speaks to this very real divide happening socially at the time between friendships as the most important connection and marriage as the important connection. Wow. It, it also still resonates today because who among us hasn't felt a little bit sad or abandoned when a close friend has a new romantic relationship or gets engaged or gets pregnant and we feel their priorities start to shift. Yeah, I remember feeling that way when some of my good friends began to get pregnant mm -hmm. because it was just one of these things where I was like, well, how is this going to work? Like, is our friendship going to be the same? And like I was saying earlier, it certainly can be with a lot of work and intentionality, but you know, it's not a foregone conclusion. Definitely not. Anne says, Diana and I are thinking seriously of promising each other that we will never marry, but be nice old maids and live together forever. Diana hasn't quite made up her mind, though, because she thinks perhaps it would be nobler to marry some wild, dashing, wicked young man and reform him. Okay, Anne and Diana, I have to say to this, por qué no los dos? Why not both? Why I not both? Never marry, be nice old maids and live together forever, and hook reform. up with some wild, dashing, wicked young man and reform him. <laughs> Absolutely. Diana going in there with the bad boys. <laughs> yeah, she is a wild streak, that one. It's well hidden, but it's sneaking in there. And of course, you could also read some of these exchanges between Anne and Diana as more of a romantic relationship. It's very easy to read this friendship as filled with romantic passion. When Anne and Diana are forbidden from seeing each other, their parting reads almost full of sexual longing to the modern reader. Anne says, oh, Diana, will you promise faithfully never to forget me, the friend of your youth, no matter what dearer friends may caress thee? Caress thee? Now, to be fair to Anne, she yanks a lot of stuff straight out of books and memorizes it. So this is likely something she read in a romance novel and just lifted full text. Yep. <laughs> uh, when she needed a flowery and poetic phrasing. And of course, it wasn't written as a gay subtext by Maud at the time. Having same-sex attraction was not going to be a viable option, and certainly not in a children's book. It's likely intended as proof of Anne's intensity of feeling here, as well as her dramatic bent. Still, it's hard not to read it as attraction as a reader now. Yeah, it's an interesting thing looking at it through a contemporary lens, because I think it can be read both ways really easily, both as just intense friendship between, you know, two emotional young girls and, you know, potentially a romantic relationship. But I can understand that when Maude was writing that, I'm sure was not her intention in the slightest. No, there has been some debate about Maude herself. As a young woman, she had several friendships with young men who felt more romantically towards her than she did towards them, and she turned down several proposals. What a boss. <laughs> I don't know. Her first engagement was to Edwin Simpson, and she accepted because she felt that her prospects were poor and she desired the protection of the institution of marriage, but she quickly came to loathe him. 
<laughs> she then had a passionate love affair with Herman Laird, but broke it off because her friends and family thought he wasn't good enough for her. And he died shortly thereafter of the flu. Tragic. Maud stopped seeking romantic love after he died. That is tragic. Can you imagine? Yeah. So she always feels like that was her romantic love unfulfilled. Yeah. Like the one that got away. Yeah. Maud had a long engagement to and eventually married Ewan McDonald. It was an unhappy marriage. She cried before the wedding and after it. She -hmm. wrote in her diary, I would not want him for a lover, but I hope at first that I might find a friend in him. Oh, Maud. But sadly, not even that was to be. And Maud was often very depressed about her marriage. The marriage was only bearable when her cousin, Freed Campbell, stayed with her. Maud wrote, it seems just now as I couldn't live without Freed. She was deeply committed to Freed, and she was devastated when Freed died in 1919 of what was then called the Spanish flu, or the flu of 1918. Maud called Freed her great love, or too great love and too perfect friendship, and said, we were part of one another. That sounds like how Anne would talk about Diana. It really does, but I can also see how maybe there was something more going on there. Yeah. Um, Maud specifically wrote in her journal, I am not a lesbian when pursued by a female admirer. Okay. Straight from the horse's mouth. But she actually rewrote her journals before she died and burned the originals. Maud! I know. So we don't know what she changed, maybe to protect herself. Oh my goodness. Okay. She actually had said uh, her and Freed's friendship like really developed one night when she spent the night and they cuddled in bed all night. I don't think she used the word cuddled. So you could read it. Yeah, you could read it kind of either way. Yeah, Uh, okay. And really it doesn't matter in the end. The actual detail of Maude and Freed's relationship with one another, the details belong to them. Yeah. It was clearly important to both of them and it brought Maude much solace in her life. And we all deserve to be deeply known and cared for, whether in friendship or romance. And then knowing how unhappy Maude was in her marriage, I am happy that she had that relationship. Yeah, a good true friend, a good true connection with someone that she felt loved and understood her. Yeah. And that's the beauty of this book and this friendship. It can be whatever Anne and Diana's friendship means to the reader. And no matter how you read it, it's a lovely portrayal of two people who set an example of support and loyalty. Now let's wear our puffiest puff sleeves and each share a favorite Diana moment from the book. And I'm going to go first. So I have to say that I adore how Diana builds Anne up about her physical attractiveness. You know, you and I grew up kind of in the cynical 80s and 90s when complimenting people openly was not very cool. So I think that people of our generation feel a little weird about it. But I think we should tell our friends how beautiful they are more often Diana tells Anne that her hair is lovely when it's cut short after the hair dyeing accident. She tells Anne that her complexion is beautiful before the concert at White Sands, and she admires Anne's willowy figure. All the things that young Anne was most sensitive about. What a darling Diana is. I love that, especially because Anne is so open about her insecurities. Mm -hmm. Diana is so generous with complimenting Anne and really wanting Anne to see herself as beautiful. Yes, it's important to her, Diana, someone who's been prized for her physical beauty, to make sure that her friend feels some of that too. Yeah, 
Well, one of my favorite little Diana details is that in Story Club, Anne says that Diana puts too many murders in her stories. Diana confesses that she doesn't always know what to do with her characters, so she just kills them off. I love the idea of prim, demure Diana writing bloodthirsty stories, and it kind of tracks with the uh, wild and wicked young man she hopes to reform. I'm telling you, she has a little wild streak in her. Yeah. It's a glimpse into a whole different side of her that the sweet girl who didn't want to swear to be friends because swearing is wicked. Yeah. So we see a little, we see there's some still waters running deep in Diana. It would be lovely to hear Anne of Green Gables from Diana's point of view. Oh my gosh, wouldn't it? I would love that. That would be hilarious. Yes. What does Diana really think about all of this? (laughs) <laughs> she just starts killing off the boys at school because they annoy her. <laughs> so for this episode, for our inspired by moment, let's be inspired by Diana. Kelly, what do you have? Okay. So I went in a kind of predictable direction here. I was really thinking about how Diana's main motif, of course, is raspberry cordial. She will never live that down. That is her fictional avatar in every way. And so I was trying to think, what have I tried that's closest to raspberry cordial? I think we had talked a few episodes ago about how we weren't even sure totally what it was. And I think I thought it was syrup. I don't know. I was confused. (laughs) (laughs) But after thinking about it a little while, I remember actually a beer that I tasted, I think it was last summer, the Rogue Brewery Raspberry Tartlandia. It is a summer sour wheat beer. And I really think it's the closest thing that we'll ever get to enjoying Diana's raspberry cordial. It is alcoholic. It is raspberry flavored. It is bubbly and it is delicious. And I hope you drink it while listening to Raspberry Beret by Prince. Well, I definitely would love to try it, but Kelly, can I ask you a question about it? Yeah. Does it still taste like beer? It still tastes like beer, unfortunately. (laughs) See, I get sucked in every time. We're like, Ooh, try this raspberry beer. And I'm like, Ooh, sure. No, it still tastes like beer. Yeah, underneath all the raspberries, still beer. Hate to break it to you. Yeah. You know what I need? I need Mike's hard lemonade to make a raspberry hard lemonade. That's my drink. I bet they do. Don't you think? They make a black cherry one. Close enough. Yeah. Yeah. I'll write to them. Maybe they'll sponsor us. (laughs) Next episode, sponsored by (laughs) Mike's hard lemonade. I'm quite a lightweight. If hard lemonade is sponsoring this podcast, my friend, it's going to be a very different podcast. Well, I'm going to go in a completely different direction for my Inspired by Diana, and I'm going to recommend the book Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close by Amina Tussau and Anne Friedman. These two friends talk deeply about friendship in their podcast, Call Your Girlfriend, and in this book, they discuss how hard it is to prioritize friendship and the ups and downs they weathered in their own friendship. It sets the bar a little high for friendships. I think after I read it, I was like, oh, am I a good friend. (laughs) But I think Diana and Anne instinctively embody this deep commitment to their friends and maybe everybody else will get some inspiration there too. I really liked that book. I guess I was just impressed more than anything else was that they went to friend therapy together. I mean, that's a whole other level of devotion and commitment to, you know, preserving and protecting an important relationship. Well, I think it really speaks to something because most of the time, I think what happens when you start to drift or feel disconnected from your friend is that you just 
drift away, right? You just drift in a different direction. And they really felt that distance, I think, growing between them and actively sought out help to figure out how to more deeply reconnect with each other. Yeah, I think that's really, really impressive. Well, a last joint recommendation from us both, inspired by Diana and Anne's friendship, is to go on a friend date or call up a friend and celebrate them. It's easy to put friendship on the back burner when life gets busy. So go buy a friend a raspberry cordial or a rogue raspberry tartlandia (laughs) in Diana's name. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Don't forget to like us and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we will see you next time as we discuss Matthew Cuthbert.